Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. When I was growing up, there were times when I didn't do something my mother asked me to do exactly when she asked me to do it. You know, that happened like maybe once or twice when I was growing up. And inevitably, the second or third time she asked me to do whatever it was, I would respond with exasperation in my voice, probably an eye roll, I'm about to. To which my mother would respond, well, what's my clue? What's my clue? In other words, as I continued doing whatever I had been doing, reading a book, watching TV, staring off into space, there was not a lot of indication that I was planning to stop doing what I'd been doing and to do what I'd been asked to do. My intentions were not evident by my actions. And when intentions aren't evident by actions, then those intentions are, at the least, incomplete, right? Or worse than that, those intentions can be suspect. They might even be downright false. I often had no intention of getting up and taking the laundry upstairs. (laughs) Intentions that are not evident by actions ultimately aren't worth very much at all. Which I think John the Baptist knew also. In our reading from Luke this morning, we find him admonishing people to, quote, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The crowds had come to John in the wilderness to be baptized. Last week, remember, we heard John call for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the crowds were coming to John to be baptized presumably professing that they intended to repent, to change from their sinful ways. But John's reply as the crowds come reminds them that those intentions, if they're not accompanied by actions, don't mean very much. You say you repent, John seems to tell them. Okay, then bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Or as my mother might have said, you say you repent, what's my clue? (laughs) Intentions are proved by actions. And so if the intention of those who came to John for baptism was repentance, then that intention needed to be proved by their actions. The state of their heart needed to be reflected in how they lived. They needed to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And it's an idea that the people who came to John seemed willing enough to accept. We don't actually know how well they carried through on it. But when John tells them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, they ask him, okay then, well, what should we do? What does the fruit of repentance look like? And John answers them, and his answers are pretty straightforward. So first, just the general crowds ask him this question. What should we do? 
And he responds simply. He says, whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. Whoever has food, do likewise. Pretty straightforward. Pretty simple, if not necessarily easy. Then a bunch of tax collectors come. And they say, okay, John, well, what should we do? What does the fruit of repentance look like for us? And John says, just collect no more than you were authorized to do. Which, of course, is not how most tax collectors operated at this time. They would collect taxes from people for the Roman Empire, but they would say, you know, that people owed a little more than they actually did, and they would just pocket the stuff they skimmed off the top. So John says to them, if you want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, don't do that. Don't steal from people. Just take what you're supposed to take. And then a bunch of soldiers come, and they ask him the same thing. What do we do? What do the fruits of repentance look like for soldiers? And John says, don't extort money from anybody by threats or false accusations, and be content with your wages. In other words, don't use your power for your own enrichment. Don't exploit people. Be happy with what you've got. Now, I think there are a few things for us <clears throat> to notice in John's responses to these questions. One is that as he describes what these fruits in keeping with repentance are like, they're not marked by people groveling in self-abasement and humiliation, right? He doesn't say just go around walking on your knees, pouring dirt on your head and saying, woe is me. He just says... You've sinned, you're repentant, good. Now go on living like it. Also, I think it's interesting to notice that the fruits of repentance aren't necessarily directly related to the sins people might be repenting of. John doesn't say to the crowds, if you've been guilty of stinginess and a lack of generosity, then give away half your stuff. He doesn't say to the tax collectors, if you've been skimming off the top in your tax collection, stop. Or to the soldiers, if you've been extorting money from people, don't. Now, maybe the assumption is that this was exactly the kind of sin that people in each of these groups were committing. And it's very possible that they were. But I think John's making a broader point here which is that if you are repentant, then you're not just sorry for the bad things you've done, but you're actively seeking to do good. So it's not just not doing bad stuff. It's actively seeking to do good. And ultimately, I think it boils down to this that the fruits of repentance are lives lived in obedience to the great commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor. None of the instructions that John gives to the people are particularly grand, right? I mean, he, here he is, this sort of crazy prophet out in the wilderness, tons of people are coming to him for this baptism. They're starting to wonder, maybe he's the Messiah. 
And rather than calling on them to do some great, phenomenal action, something grand or symbolic, he just says, you know, just kind of be good. Love people. Don't do bad stuff. It's the ordinary day-to-day stuff of our lives. That is where our repentance is played out. God doesn't call us to grand gestures most of the time. He calls us for faithfulness in the day-to-day. The consistent choice to live each day in ways that express love for God and for neighbor, that's what God's looking for. That is fruit that is in keeping with true repentance. It's, in many ways, a, a beautiful message that John proclaims. But I'm actually kind of surprised that the crowds and the tax collectors and the soldiers are as open to that message and as receptive to it as they seem to have been. Because John wasn't exactly known for being gentle in his delivery. He didn't pad his call to fruitful repentance with lots of encouragement and affirmation. That's just... That is not how John rolled. John, in fact, pretty much did the opposite. As Luke writes, John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. The message puts it this way. John exploded, brood of snakes, What do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? Do you think a little water on your snakeskins is going to deflect God's judgment? I'm going to hazard a guess that if I had gotten up here and started the sermon by calling you all a brood of vipers, it might not have gone over so well. You probably wouldn't be particularly responsive to whatever it was I was going to say after that. And then, after he's called them a brood of vipers, he goes, John goes on. He says, don't begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. Because I'm telling you, God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. He's saying... You can't bank on your heritage, on your identity as a member of the nation of Israel, as a son or daughter of Abraham. You can't count on that to save you. That may sound reasonable and normal to our ears, but I think we shouldn't underestimate how remarkable and maybe even upsetting this would have been to John's listeners. For the Israelites, their identity was largely wrapped up in the idea of being a chosen nation. Their identity came from the fact that they belonged to the group, that they were children of Abraham. And here is John saying, nope, not good enough. You cannot rely on your family tree to ensure that you're in good with God. That's called complacency, and it doesn't cut it with God. So John is being awfully harsh, maybe even 
downright insulting. Which is why I find it so remarkable that the people didn't just stomp off in a huff. They actually seemed to listen to what John was saying. They even wanted to know more. They said, okay, we want to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. How do we do that? So what's the deal? What is it that makes the people respond to John with this kind of openness and receptivity? Well, I would argue that the people respond to John the way that they do because they know the character of the God who is calling them to repent. That character is seen throughout what we call the Old Testament, what for John's hearers was simply the scriptures. And it's a character that we see in a beautiful way in our Old Testament reading this morning from Zephaniah. This passage from the third chapter of Zephaniah is a beautiful one. It is honestly one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. And we will look in a moment at what makes it beautiful. But its beauty is even more so when we understand it in light of the rest of the book of Zephaniah. It's just three chapters long, the whole book. And the first two chapters, and really the first half of the third chapter, are full of God's judgment and wrath. So we get things like this in chapter 1, verse 2. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. In chapter 1, verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. In chapter 2, verse 15, this is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Over and over through these two and a half chapters, God is declaring his judgment against those who oppress the vulnerable, against God's own people when they are complacent, when they are unfaithful, when they worship other gods. These verses are not easy verses to hear. This picture of a wrathful and judging God are not ones that we want to sort of go to sleep by at night. But then in chapter 3, verse 9, the tone begins to change. And we find that God brings not wrath and judgment, but salvation and mercy. So we find him bringing together those who have been scattered far from their homes. In verse 10, he says, From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. I'm going to bring these people home from their far places so they can worship. God promises that he will refine his people. In verse 9, he says, At that time, I'll change the speech of the people to pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. 
He promises that he will make his people holy. In verse 13, those who are left in Israel shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. And God promises to vindicate his people. In verses 18 and 19, he says, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all of your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame to praise and to renown in all the earth. God promises to his people that he will bring them home, that he will refine them and make them holy, that he will vindicate them and free them from oppression. And what happens when God does this? In verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That is the character of God. God is a God who shouts with joy over his people, who just delights in them, who comforts them and encourages them. This is a God who rejoices over his people. And this heart of God, this character of God that we see in this last half of chapter 3, I think that is what allows us to understand the judgment and the wrath of the rest of the book. It's because God wants the things that are described in the last part that the judgment and the wrath are declared. God wants the kind of joyful and intimate and loving relationship with his people that are described in the end of chapter 3. And for that to happen, God calls the people away from their faithlessness, from their indifference, from their sin and their oppression and complacency. God calls people to repentance so he can exult over them with singing. I think that whatever openness the crowds had to John's call to repentance, even to those harsh words of judgment that he spoke, whatever openness they had was the result of their knowing somehow this true heart of God. The heart of God that we see in Zephaniah 3. Maybe they knew it from their knowledge of the scriptures. Maybe it was something in the way John spoke or in his actions that communicated it. Maybe God simply moved in their hearts. But regardless of how it happened, I think the people responded with openness to, God's, to John's call to repentance because they knew the heart of the God to whom they were repenting. So as we enter this final week of Advent, 
a season of repentance and waiting? There are two questions that I invite you to ask. First, what does fruit in keeping with repentance look like in our own lives? If we were to go to John and say, what then shall we do? What would his answer to us be? We can take clues from his answer to the others that it might be a life marked by generosity and honesty and contentment. But specifically, how does God want us want to bear the fruit of repentance in us in the day-to-day things of our lives? Again, not big, grand, lofty gestures, but the small and consistent faithfulness in the day-to-day. So what does fruit in keeping with repentance look like in our lives? And then secondly, do we know, do we experience the heart of God that we hear in Zephaniah? Do we experience God's call to us to repent because that's what God's heart is like? That that is God's desire. God doesn't just want us to rejoice in him. He wants to rejoice in us. So when we hear God's call to repentance, do we hear it in the voice of one whose heart is what we see in Zephaniah 3? These are questions for us to ponder and to pray over in these remaining days of Advent. I want to conclude with a short passage that I think captures well this idea of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, not out of fear or guilt, but out of love for the God who loves us first. It's in a little Advent devotional book that I have, and it's an excerpt from Brendan Manning's book, The Lion and the Lamb. And in this excerpt, he's describing a story about St. Francis. One day, St. Francis and Brother Leo were walking down the road. Noticing that Leo was depressed, Francis turned and asked, Leo, do you know what it means to be pure of heart? Of course, it means to have no sins, faults, or weaknesses to reproach myself for. Ah, said Francis, Now I understand why you're sad. We will always have something to reproach ourselves for. Right, said Leo, that's why I despair of ever arriving at purity of heart. Leo, listen carefully to me. Don't be so preoccupied with the purity of your heart. Turn and look at Jesus. Admire him. Rejoice that he is what he is your brother, your friend, your Lord and Savior. That, little brother, is what it means to be pure of heart. John calls his listeners and God calls us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And I think the best way that we can do that is over and over to turn our eyes toward Jesus to turn our eyes toward God, our Father, to the one who wants to rejoice over us with singing. Turn and look at Jesus. 
admire him, rejoice that he is what he is, your brother, your friend, your Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.